Good morning. We are resuming our study of the rapture and the end times, but particularly the rapture. We talked last time about the pre-trib rapture and evidence for it. Today, we're going to continue that discussion because I only shared with you a little bit of proof of the pre-trib rapture. So I've got more to share with you, and we're going to start in 2 Thessalonians. So if you take your Bibles and turn to 2 Thessalonians, we're going to discuss today some key passages and the different views of the rapture. So there are a lot of people who see differently on this topic. Um, lots of diversity of views. The rapture has been uh, very, very divisive, sadly. I hate that it's that way, but it just happens to be the case that a lot of people have big opinions about the rapture. Uh, this is not a salvation issue, so I want to preface that. I mean, I think that that should go without saying that your belief on the timing of the rapture doesn't have anything to do with whether or not you're going to make it into heaven. That has to do with whether or not you've received the gift of salvation by believing the gospel. But it is an important issue, I believe, because it has to do with whether or not you're encouraged by the truth of the blessed hope. So the rapture, the return of Jesus is our blessed hope. It's constantly taught in the New Testament. It's not tertiary. It's very important. It was meant to encourage us. It was meant to keep us on our guard spiritually to overcome temptation and to, of course, build up the body of Christ. We looked at that in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5. It talks about how we're not appointed to wrath, uh, but we're appointed to salvation, to be delivered from the day of the Lord and to be with him evermore. And that's when we receive our glorified bodies. So that's something we should be talking about all the time. It's funny that whenever I've had conversations sometimes with Christians, I'll throw in a reference to the glorified body that I'm going to one day have. And sometimes they look at me like I'm funny and I'm thinking, okay, has this person not heard this really important truth that one day we're going to receive a resurrected body? And it, it seems like the kingdom has been spiritualized to such an extent that maybe people believe that one day we will receive these bodies, but they're not something that they talk about often. It's not something that they think about. I don't think a day goes by that I don't think that the rapture could happen today. I hope that it happens today. And man, I really look forward to having that new body where I'm set free from temptation and I'm set free from pain. And uh, that's something we should constantly be discussing with one another. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and verses 6, so we're going to look at a couple of verses here, we have some key details that help us understand the timing of the rapture. So this is one of those passages that's highly debated because it gives us specific information about the coming of the Lord, when it's going to happen, You'll have people who are mid-trib or pre-wrath, and they will latch on to these verses to try to prove their viewpoint. And ironically, the pre-trib people think that they have a good case from these same verses. So let's look at verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed the son of perdition. Now, in verse number two, I want to highlight a key phrase here, but I'll read the whole verse first. It says, That ye be not soon shaken of mind, or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter, as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. So, Paul is saying that you haven't missed out on the day of Christ. Now, some translations say day of the Lord. And the point that he would be trying to make in that case is don't be afraid 
that the day of the Lord is here or it's arriving soon. That's not something you should be worried about. The day of the Lord was a time of judgment on earth. We talked about that last time in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And if y'all were not there when we went over this, you can always listen to the podcast. Uh, we'll be getting that up soon. But 1 Thessalonians 5 talks about the day of the Lord in very negative terms. But the day of Christ, if you follow the day of Christ throughout Paul's writings, get a concordance and look it up. Uh, it's always a positive thing. The day of Christ refers to being with Jesus in heaven. It's a reward giving ceremony. It's a time where we finish our rest or sorry, finish our labors. And we, we rest from those things that we've been striving at here on earth. So it's something that takes place after the rapture. Okay. So immediately after the rapture, we come before the Lord and there's the Bema seat. I say Bema. Bema is a Greek word. It refers to a reward giving ceremony at the end of a competition. And so there will be a special person, a man of importance, like a magistrate, a politician, maybe even Caesar himself. And they would sit in a high seat and they would give crowns to those who had ran the race well. And so that's going to take place at the rapture. So he's saying, don't worry about whether or not you've missed out on the day of Christ. I think that the point he's trying to say here is some people are trying to deceive you into thinking that you've missed that special time in heaven where believers, they rest, they're free from judgment, they're exempt from the day of the Lord, the wrath that is going to be poured out during that time. You're not going to miss out on that. So don't let anybody deceive you into thinking that you will. And then he goes on to give specific information to prove his point. So he's saying you certainly have not missed out on the day of Christ. Paul himself writing this hasn't missed out on the day of Christ. Okay, it's not as if the rapture's already happened. Okay, you got to understand that Christianity is a pretty small religion at this point. Uh, and so the rapture would not have shaken the whole world as it would today, perhaps, or at least certain countries because of Christian population. Back then, Christianity was a, a pretty small movement. Um, so you could imagine there being a fear that what if your small church has been left behind? You know, what if the day of Christ is going on right now in heaven and everybody's celebrating and judgment's about to fall upon us because we've been left behind down here. So that was a fear that apparently the Thessalonians had and some people were instilling that fear in them through false teaching. But he goes on and he clarifies that there are some things that have to happen. Okay. So in verse number three, it says, let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And so that's number two. He brings up another detail. We'll go into that detail about the man of sin in just a minute. But the first thing is, there shall come a falling away first. Now, the Greek word for falling away is apostasia. Every English translation of the Bible prior to the King James rendered it as departure. Departure, 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 departure. And that strongly hints at the rapture. So you're not going to see um, the day of the Lord happen on earth and the reward giving ceremony in heaven, the day of Christ. That's not going to happen in heaven until First, a departure. The departure has to happen. So it's positive if you're going in the departure. If you're being left behind, it's obviously negative uh, because you're suffering God's wrath being poured out. But the falling away has to happen first. Now, falling away in and of itself is not an incorrect translation. It's just people read into it a connotation that I don't think the Greek gives it. Uh, when people will read the word apostasy, they automatically think that it's related to apostasy. And apostasy means a falling away spiritually or morally. And yes, it is a term that can mean that. 
but it's used outside the Bible quite often in a completely amoral, aspiritual sense. So it, it means someone departing from one location and going to another. So it can mean departing a locale or it can mean departing in a, in a more spiritual sense. So which is the meaning here? If it is talking about something spiritual, then this would refer to perhaps a falling away within the visible church, you know, lukewarm Christianity. We know that's going to happen. The Bible talks about that elsewhere. The question is, is that being talked about here? So as far as the Greek is concerned, it could go either way. And that's really what the debate centers around. Uh, I, for one, am making the case today that falling away refers to something like the dam bursting and breaking. And that's when this age of lawlessness begins. Now we're seeing increased lawlessness today, but it's not anything like what's going to happen in the tribulation whenever the one that restrains is being removed. And that's what we're about to read in just a moment. So there's somebody restraining current affairs, keeping things from being as bad as they're going to be. Whenever the antichrist rises to power, the reason he is not rose to power is because he is currently being restrained. Now the falling away refers to Basically, that barrier that God has up right now that keeps back the Antichrist from appearing, that keeps back uh, a new world order from coming to its, its final culmination, that thing is going to fall away. So what is it? There are different interpretations. Some think it's government. Okay, I don't think it's the government. Okay, Some think that it's the church. That's a little bit more reasonable, but there's more to it than that because the church in and of itself, as just human beings, we don't have the ability to restrain the devil. It's the Holy Spirit in the church. Yes. Okay. So that's what I believe that it's referring to, but let's keep reading um, because we need more than just that. It says in verse number three, at the very end, that man of sin will be revealed, the son of perdition who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshiped so that he is God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Notice this is the opposite of what Jesus did. Okay. So Jesus, when he came, he emptied himself. So while Jesus did make claims to his deity on earth, Jesus in general, he did not come to be served. He came to serve. Okay. He didn't hold on to this equality with God and stay in heaven where it was comfortable. He came into a world and experienced pain, suffering, and death for us. The Antichrist, on the other hand, is going to rise to power and he's going to serve himself. He's not going to serve other people. And he's going to try to accrue to bring all this glory and worship to himself rather than living humbly as Jesus did. So we see a huge difference between the true Christ and the Antichrist here. But uh, that's going to happen halfway through the tribulation. The Antichrist will be revealed when? At the very beginning of the tribulation. If we were here, I don't believe Christians will be here. So I'm arguing for a preacher of rapture. But if Christians were here and they were aware of the word of God, Daniel 9 makes it very clear that if a guy rises to power, representing powerful nations... And he makes a covenant with Israel that is going to last for seven years. And the nations he represents are constituted by a revived Roman empire. That is a dead giveaway that this is your antichrist. And there will be people who are left behind that come to faith after the rapture takes place. No doubt about it. And when they see this covenant being signed, they will know who he is before the rest of the world does. But he will not be fully and finally revealed as the man of sin Okay, at first people are going to love this guy. They're not going to see him as a man of iniquity. But he will be revealed as a man of sin whenever he sets himself up in the temple as God. He's going to expect people to worship him. They must receive his mark on the hand or on the forehead. And if they do not worship him, if they don't uh, bow down to this idol that he will have set up in the temple, 
then they will be executed. And we're going to talk about this because it ties into the festival of Hanukkah. So on Friday, when we have our Hanukkah study, we're going to see how that event that happened, that Hanukkah is based on, is actually a type, a foreshadowing in Daniel 11 of the coming Antichrist. So that's going to happen one day. But we'll, we'll see how that is connected later. But uh, we have two different phases of the Antichrist being revealed. The first phase is he signs the covenant. If I saw that happen on the news, I know exactly who the Antichrist is. No more speculation about, oh, he might be. Okay, because Christians do that now. I've done that before. Like, maybe he could be. Who knows? But we will know for sure halfway through because he is going to exalt himself as God and expect worship from the people. Not just the people of Israel, but all the people in all the world. Now, look at verse number five. Remember ye not that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. So they already had a crash course in eschatology. <clears throat> Don't y'all wish you could have had that with Paul? I'm thankful that we have his writings, but it would be really nice to sit down with an amillennialist and a postmillennialist and be like, Paul, all right, set us straight. All right, I'm pretty pretty sure that you believe in a, a pre-trib rapture and a, and a millennial reign of Christ. Like, tell us where you're at. Tell us, Patrick. Tell us. <laughs> so, uh... They got that, okay? The Thessalonians had that course in eschatology, but we have enough, I believe, to create uh, a sound view of the end times. God's word is completely sufficient. But it says in verse 6, And now ye know what withholdeth, what restraineth, that he might be revealed in his time. So the Antichrist will not yet be revealed because he's being restrained. Verse 7, For the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth, Okay, this, that's a, an old English word at this point. When we say let someone do something, we mean allow them to do it. Here, letteth is restrain. Okay, it actually had the opposite meaning at one time. So he who now letteth will let. That means he who is restraining now will continue to restrain until he be taken out of the way. Now, if you're closely looking at the language here, at first in verse 6, it says what withholdeth. So it refers to a thing. And then if you move on to verse number seven, it says, he who now letteth. So we have this interchange between it and he. This is very common in the Greek New Testament when we're talking about the Holy Spirit. So there are times when the Holy Spirit is referred to in the Greek as an it. There are times when the Holy Spirit is referred to as a he. Okay, this is quite natural because when we refer to our spirit, okay, sometimes we refer to our spirit as an it. Okay, we refer to it as sort of something else, even though our spirit is who we are, right? Our spirit is a person, okay? I am the spirit, the spirit is me, but sometimes we'll refer to the spirit in an it, okay? So there's nothing wrong with referring to the Holy Spirit in that sense, as long as you're doing it that way. But a lot of people will take it too far and say the Holy Spirit is a force or, you know, some kind of spiritual law governing things. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, according to the usage of the New Testament, is often referred to as it and he. So it's quite natural because who could restrain the devil but God? I can't. I certainly can't restrain the devil. All Christians in the world cannot match the might of an angel, okay? Albeit a fallen one. However, the Holy Spirit can, and we see that in Jesus' ministry. He binds demons by the power of the Holy Ghost, and he restrains them. Right now, he is restraining them. He's keeping the man of lawlessness who will be empowered by the devil before the proper time. 
it says in verse number eight, then that wicked will be revealed. So this is talking about the wicked one, the man of sin, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. So what that means is right now, the Antichrist, he is not empowered. First off, he's not on the, the world scene as far as we can see, okay? So he hasn't been revealed to us, even though I, I don't doubt that he's there, right? But he hasn't come onto the scene yet. He certainly has not been empowered. So that means miraculous power will be given to the Antichrist. So, of course, he is going to be doing false miracles. He's not giving glory to God, and, and he is going to be expecting worship when he deserves none. He's a created being. He doesn't deserve to be worshipped. But Satan will be given the authority to give the Antichrist all of these powers, as well as the false prophet who works miracles too, as described in Revelation. But that hasn't happened yet because Satan is being restrained. I think that in the tribulation, we will see more demonic activity than ever before in the history of mankind. Maybe we could compare it to the days of Noah before the flood, a time of great demonic activity, just as we saw if you read in Genesis chapter six, there was demonic activity taking place with the sons of God and daughters of men. But that is not happening today because God is restraining things. So it's not to say that demons are not active, but they're on a leash. They can only accomplish so much. Now, how much they can get away with, we don't know because the Bible doesn't give us all that information. And let's not probe into that because if God wanted us to know, he would have revealed it. But right now they are being revealed or sorry, not revealed, restrained until that time when the Antichrist is revealed. And that's not going to happen until what? The falling away. So if you're carefully looking at this text, the falling away and the one that withholds being removed, they are parallel events. So can you imagine the Holy Spirit being removed out of the world without the church going with him? The, the Holy Spirit came down in a special sense. The Holy Spirit's God, omnipresent, of course, but the Holy Spirit came down in a unique way at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit since then has not been removed, but one day he will be. Now, I have no doubt that as soon as the church is taken out, okay, within probably the following minutes, people are going to get saved and you're going to have people receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But there will be a second there. Okay, perhaps some minutes, who knows how long it'll be before people come around and believe. Okay, but there will be a moment in time when the Holy Spirit in an indwelling sense is absent from the world. And it is that which triggers the revelation of the man of sin. So this text is a really strong pre-trib text, I believe. So you believe the Holy Spirit will still be indwelling believers during the tribulation? Yes, yes. I don't see how you can avoid that. Uh, there are some dispensationalists that don't think so. But I don't believe that we are going backwards. So I do believe in a progressive plan of God. Um, I think that God has not gotten his people Israel to see the truth yet. And there's going to be a time of repentance. But uh, the Holy Spirit's going to be poured out on them. And it says it very clearly uh, in Joel chapter 2. So I think that there will be another group of people who are receiving the Holy Spirit and being indwelt. And, and we know that at the original Pentecost, they didn't just have the Spirit come on them. He actually indwelt them. So these people who are being revived in Israel in the tribulation, they will also be indwelled by the spirit in the same way. Um, yes, yes. So we're, we're moving forward. There are some dispensationalists. Yeah, exactly. Some think that it's like it's going backwards. We're going to go back to the law. And I don't believe that. The law has been done away with. Jesus clearly made it a point of his ministry to say that I'm coming to fulfill it. 
The cross is where our debt is nailed and it's done away with. And so the idea that we would go back under the law, I think is wrong. Some people would say, oh, well, it's sacrifices will come back. Yes, but if you closely compare the sacrifices of the millennium that are described at the end of Ezekiel, if you compare those with the mosaic system, they're not the same. So while it appears to have a mosaic veneer, it looks very similar to Old Testament days. It's actually not the same. So it is different. So the people... No. The, the, the yes, yes. That's, that's We're talking about even even after though, like in the millennium, the sacrifices that happened there, uh, that's controversial. Some people take them as completely symbolic. I, I think that's an error on some people's part. They, they insist upon literal interpretation and then they get there and they're like, oh, but these are symbolic. No, they're not. I mean, when it talks about in Ezekiel them being in a real temple, sacrifices being given, I think it's a memorial. Um, I think that it is to get the attention of people who are living in a paradisal state that sin demands death. So if you're living in a world where people have lifespans that are pretty much indefinite and you don't see death because curse has been removed, how do these people understand the seriousness of sin? Yeah. Well, when they see an animal die, I mean, when I first shot a deer, when I was oh, like, what, seven years old and I saw that deer laying on the ground, it was dead. It was a poignant reminder to me that death is an unnatural thing. And so it's meant to get the attention of people during that time. So um, were you going to ask a question, Sandy? Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to ask, so the pre-trib, um, the man of lawlessness will not be revealed to us because the rapture will happen. Yes, yes. Okay. So that's what it says here. It says he will not be revealed except there come a falling away first. And that's that man of sin be revealed. So that's the next step. So it's falling away, man of sin being revealed. He can't be revealed until the restraining one has been taken out of the situation. And I mean, look at the very first verse of chapter two. It says, now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together unto him. And we talked last time about the difference between the rapture and the second coming. The rapture is a gathering together unto him, as opposed to the second coming in Revelation 19, where we are coming down. We're already with him. When Revelation 19 happens, Armageddon takes place and the clouds part and Jesus comes back with the saints. We've already been with him at this point. So when he speaks of the gathering together unto him, he's no doubt referring to what he's already talked about in 1 Thessalonians. We will be caught up in the clouds to be with him. And so the gathering together happens first. I think that's the falling away. I think that it's God getting his church, his bride out of Dodge before literally all hell breaks loose on earth. I think he's bringing them out. It's the ark. Uh, the days of Noah, just as he took his faithful and he put them in the ark before the floodgates were opened, this exact same thing happened. So I think falling away, it makes a lot of sense. You ever seen a dam burst and you see all the, the pieces of wood and they start to crumble and they start to fall away and then the waters come. I think that falling away refers to not a spiritual apostasy, but a departure of the church. So that's a really strong text, I believe, supporting the preacher view. Now, there's one more we need to look at, and then we'll talk about the different views. So turn to Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. And outside of outside of 1 Thessalonians 5, this is probably the biggest pre-trib text ever used. So Revelation 3, verse 10. I'll give you a second to get there. But remember, in 1 Thessalonians 5, it says we're not appointed to wrath, but salvation. That seems pretty clear to me in the context. He's talking about the wrath of the day of the Lord. And he says, we're not appointed for that, but rather we're going to be caught up to be with him forever. So if that's not enough, Revelation 3.10, I think seals the deal. But there's a little bit of controversy surrounding it. 
So Revelation 3, <clears throat> verse 10. Because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation, which shall come upon the whole world, all the world, to try them that dwell upon the earth. So this is clearly universal language. It's a time of temptation or testing that comes on everybody. And he speaks of their patience. Okay, so this is the church of Philadelphia. It mentions that in verse 7. They have been faithful to the Lord. Um, he says in verse number 8, I know thy works. Behold, I have set before thee an open door, and no man can shut it. Some people think that refers to missionary opportunity, and that's perhaps involved in the statement. But to me, when it mentions an open door, it kind of reminds me of Revelation 4.1 when it talks about a door opened up in heaven. For thou hast a little strength and hast kept my word and hast not denied my name. So these are faithful believers. And he's saying, because of your faithfulness, I am promising you that you will not be on earth whenever my wrath is poured out. Whenever this hour of temptation comes to try the whole world, all those who dwell upon the earth, you won't be there. Now, some people think this is, I'll keep you through it. Like you'll be down here, but I'm just going to shield you in a way. Um, however, the Greek does not have that preposition dia through it's ek out of, I'm keeping you from it. You're, you're exempt from it. So you can't take from it or out of it and make it through it. <laughs> um, they're completely different words in English as well as in the Greek, but the big controversy about this, it seems so obvious, right? I mean, he's promising in them that they will not be a part of the world system that is being judged by God, but they'll be removed from it before that judgment begins. But there's one little thing that might bother you a little bit. If you've not noticed it, he says, because thou hast kept the word of my patience. So there are some people who will take that and, and they'll make it say, if you are faithful, you'll be taken in the rapture. This leads to what's known as the partial rapture view. Now, if you look up on my slides, I don't have the partial rapture view. Okay. Because partial rapture doesn't really have as much to do with the timing as who's being taken. So you could hold to the partial rapture view and be pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, whatever. Okay. But the partial rapture view says that when Jesus comes back, carnal believers will be left behind. Spiritual believers or faithful ones will be taken. And they might use a verse like this to support that. However, there's a big problem. In 1 Thessalonians 5, it says, whether you are waking or sleeping, that means you're watching faithfully or you're sleeping with the world, even though you're not of the world, you will be taken to live with me. So we broke that passage down last time when we were in 1 Thessalonians 5. So that is as explicit statement as possible that carnal believers, even if they're sleeping, they will be taken out of the world because they are not appointed for wrath, but to salvation. Okay. Even if they are not acting like children of the day, that's who they are. And that guarantees them positionally this benefit, this They're privilege. Saved. They're saved. It's done deal. So it can't mean that. So what does it mean? I think that people will sometimes read too much into a text. In verse 10, all I see is this. There are some really faithful people in this church. That's what they're characterized by. Okay. Under all the pressure around them, they have not denied the Lord. They are faithfully serving him and he is comforting them. Okay. What is his comfort here? Listen, I, I know that y'all have had it hard, okay? And I'm pleased with you, okay? You have not denied my, my name. You've kept the word of my patience. And because of that, you can be assured that I will keep my promise to you. I think that's all he's saying. 
is that because you've been faithful, don't doubt that I'm going to keep you out of the worst of it. Right now, you're going through a hard time. But trust me, guys, it's going to get worse. And if you were to read the book of Revelation, you're going to see all that. No time of persecution compares to what's going to be poured out upon the world one day. And he's saying, you might have it rough right now, but be assured, I will not allow you to go through the worst that is to come. Now, again, some people might think that that sounds a little works-based, but if you properly understand what the Lord is saying here, I don't think that's the case at all. So I'm going to read you again from 2 Thessalonians. And in chapter 1, I'm going to read you some verses that I think are key to interpreting a ton of passages. I like Paul. I don't know why I gravitate to him so much. I think it's because he is so careful in how he distinguishes concepts, positional truth and practical truth. And to me, I really thrive on that because rightly dividing the word is what I'm all about. Okay. I don't want people to be confused. I certainly don't want to be confused. And I think Paul does a good job in second Thessalonians one of explaining some things, but, um, I'm going to start in verse number four, second Thessalonians one, four, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endured. Just like the people of Philadelphia, they are being persecuted. And he says in verse five, which is a manifest token or proof of the righteous judgment of God that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer. Now go down just a little bit to verse 11. Wherefore also we pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with prayer. Now, if you look at that statement, what Paul is saying is while you are called and he does not in any sense question their salvation, he recognizes them as saints. He's saying that it is God's purpose through a situation in which they are persecuted to set them apart as worthy of their calling. Now, there's a difference between being called and having a promise and being worthy of that calling. Now, in an absolute sense, will we ever be worthy of salvation? No. And Paul would be the first person to say, that's not what I'm saying. However, he does talk about being righteous. Now, when Paul says, look, Jesus saved you, be righteous. As he's saying, look, Jesus saved you, never sin again, because reasonably you can do that. No, he's not saying you're never going to be able to sin. You're never going to sin, actually. He's simply saying that being righteous in a relative sense is possible for Christians. I sin on a daily basis. However, I am striving to honor the God that has bought me, who has saved me. And I think that even if someone sins occasionally, they can still be sanctified and conformed to the Lord, always needing to go to God in prayer and seeking forgiveness of sins. But I think that God, when he looks upon you because of the blood of Christ, he can look past these sins that you commit on a daily basis. As long as you are seeking him and confessing your sins and fulfilling his will in a general sense, I think that he thinks that you're faithful. I think that he looks upon you and says, this person's righteous. Not absolutely, because no one's absolutely righteous, but Jesus. But how many times in the Bible has God spoken to a person, a faithful person and said, you are righteous in my eyes. 
And we just read in the previous chapter, they weren't so righteous, you know? So what he's saying there is God in his grace, because of the blood of Jesus, when we are living according to our new nature and we're honoring God, even if we stumble, even occasionally on a daily basis, as long as we are not living in gross rebellion against him, he can say that person's righteous. Because there's a difference between, okay, um, you know, I popped off to my wife today. Okay. I got angry with my wife, right? That's sin. I need to seek her forgiveness for that. I need to confess that to God. There's a difference between doing that. Okay. Losing my temper and, and going out and getting drunk and partying, squandering the money that I earned that I'm supposed to be providing my family with being immoral. Okay. Outside the wedding bed. All of that is different than occasionally getting angry unjustly at my wife. Now I, Yes. So I still, do I still need to seek God's forgiveness for that? Absolutely. There's no excuse, but because it does happen. I mean, yeah, I, I have a temper every now and then I lose my temper. So I have to say, and Katie can, she can corroborate this. I generally say I'm sorry. Okay. Huh? And so when I ask for forgiveness, she extends it freely. Okay. And, and I think God he looks at my life as a whole and I think he sees, okay, buddy's trying to be a good husband and I am, I'm trying to be a good father. Okay. I'm not saying, God, I don't care what you want me to do. I'm going to do things my way. That's not my attitude. Okay. Every now and then I have missteps. Okay. And I, and I try to confess those when they happen. So the people he's talking to at Thessalonica, don't tell me these are a bunch of Jesus's running around that never sin. But what God is saying is, I'm pleased because all this persecution that you're enduring right now, it hasn't made you tap out. You haven't denied my name. And so God sees you as worthy of your calling because you're taking what he's given you and you're trying to give it back in the sense of he laid his life down for me. I want to lay my life down for him. So is it possible to be worthy of your calling in a relative sense? Yes. And so I think that in Revelation 3.10, that's what he's saying to these people. He's saying, I'm proud of you. And because I'm proud of your hard work, you can be very sure that I'm not going to leave you down here when it gets bad. Now, however, let's say you have one guy in that congregation. Okay, he stands in the back and he's the carnal believer. Everybody knows about him. Okay. And he's not like everybody else in the congregation. Okay. Is the Lord going to turn and look at him and say, all right, you on the other hand, I'm leaving you down here. No, he's going to be taken too. He's going to be taken in the rapture too, according to 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and 10. However, when he's taken, will he be taken because he's worthy of the calling or will he be taken because he's saved by grace through faith? He's covered by the blood. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good parable, Steve. And we're actually going to talk about those parables at some point in the future. I've not quite finished studying that, but I want to discuss those. But um, I think that you can be, and this is something that we should strive for as Christians. When we, we can come into heaven victorious, you know, not, not dragging our feet. We can go into heaven and God can put a crown on our head and he can say, look, you're worthy of this. Now, of course, we're going to cast those crowns right back at him because guys, uh, under the weight of such glory, our knees are going to buckle before him and we're going to cast that back. But it doesn't change the fact that we pleased God. We actually pleased him and he counted us worthy. 
and he can say, look, I saved you and it was free, but man, you did a good job living up to your calling. So he talks about that. And again, when we are so consumed by sin and we understand the true nature of the gospel, that even one sin is enough to separate us from God for all eternity. Sometimes we feel very far away from worthy, but I think it's those kinds of people that are sensitive to every little sin and they're trying to confess and they're trying to honor God in their life. They're going to stand before God and the people who are considered worthy of that crown are going to be people who feel like they're the least worthy of all. And I think they're going to people be people who they have these big ministries, but their hearts are not right with God and they come before him and they're going to think, where's my crown? And they're not going to be worthy. And in the most extreme case, you have the people who they said, didn't we not cast out demons? Did we not do great works in your name? And of course, that's not talking about the Bema seat. That's talking about at the end of the tribulation when Jesus comes back. But there will be people who they expect to be commended and they're not going to receive it. Jesus will say, depart from me. I never knew you. You know, the Pharisees were just like that, weren't they? When Jesus came the first time, they thought that the Messiah was going to commend him for all their hard work. And because of that arrogance, they were rebuked. However, the people who were most sensitive to their sin and repented, people who even like John the Baptist, John the Baptist, what do he say? I'm not even worthy to take off his shoes and carry them. Not even worthy to do that. I'm not worried to, worthy to baptize you, Jesus. You need to baptize me. But that person who was so exceedingly in his own mind unworthy, what did Jesus have to say about him? There's no other person like him. There's no prophet as great as this one. Yeah. Absolutely. You see that paradox. These people feel like they're completely unworthy. And yet. It says I do what I shouldn't. I want to do what I do. Yeah. I think that's so wonderful that he can say that, you know, and we look at him as. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's also like the people who doubt their salvation all the time. Yes. There are times where persons living carnally, they come to church and they doubt their salvation. Yeah. But there are a lot of people, most people probably in church that doubt their salvation. You would not even think it. You'd be like, dude, like you're serving honorly, honorly in, in church and, um, you're doing so much for the Lord, but yeah, they're like, but I don't know. You know, I feel like, you know, it's not enough. Well, it's not enough. It's never going to be enough. But it's funny that people who doubt their salvation the most, you would not really think that about them. You know, on the surface, you would think like these people are doing a good job. Why are they doubting so much? Then you have the other people who they don't doubt at all, but maybe they should be thinking about their relationship with Jesus, you know? Um, so what I'm trying to say about Revelation 3.10 and second Thessalonians is that whenever Jesus speaks to these believers and says, because of your faithfulness, I'm going to take you out of the world. It's an additional reason. So we're going to be taken out of the world just because we're saved. Paul makes that plain. But I think that there is two different kinds of entrances into heaven. Worthy entrance, worthy of your calling, victory procession, receiving a crown, people who don't feel like they deserve it, but he's going to come into them anyways. It's going to be a wonderful time. And then there are the people that they get into heaven they're in, they're saved. But as uh, my Ditta used to say, they're going to get in with their leg hair singed is what he always used to say. It's smelling like smoke. So now let's, uh, let's wrap it up with a real quick, you could say preview of what we're going to look at next time. Cause we're not going to be able to cover this today. Um, and that's fine. I don't want to rush it guys. 
Uh, but the different views of the rapture. The first one's pre-trib. We already talked about that. That should be pretty understood at this point. Uh, some people, though, would be pre-trib and say the rapture happens before the seals of Revelation, and some say after the seals. So some people would say the seals are currently being opened. I do not agree with that personally, but they're still pre-trib. So they would say the seven-year tribulation period Christians will be exempt from, but they think that the rapture won't happen until the sixth seal is opened. And so they think when the sixth seal is opened, then that's when the rapture happens. There's a great earthquake. Um, it says people are trying to hide themselves under rocks. Say mountains, you know, fall upon us to hide themselves from the face of God and from the lamb, from their wrath. Uh, some people think that's when the rapture happens and they'll still be pre-trib. The traditional pre-trib position, though, puts the rapture prior to the seals. And I agree with that. I think that the rapture is prior to the seals. Um, the mid-trib view says that halfway through, when those two witnesses, who I think are Moses and Elijah, when they die and they're resurrected in the sight of all the world, they think that coincides with the rapture. So when they're taken up into heaven, even though it only mentions those two, they think that that also happens alongside the general rapture of Christians. The post review is pretty easy to understand. It says that the rapture and the second coming happen at the same time. So we go up and we come down and it's no real interval there. It's like a swooping, we go up, we come down. The pre-wrath view is becoming quite popular nowadays. And it basically says that we're going to go through three quarters of the tribulation. And they would put in that last quarter all the trumpets and all the bowls. And they would say that uh, we're not going to be here for the trumpets and the bowls. But we'll be here for the seals. And when the Antichrist is revealed, we'll be here. When he begins to persecute Christians, we'll be here. We're just going to be exempt from that final quarter. And that pre-wrath view would try to use that second Thessalonians passage that we just looked at to support their view. But as I, I explained, I don't think that that is the case at all. I think that actually supports the preacher view. Uh, but those are the four main rapture positions and we will discuss those more next time we meet. Hopefully y'all enjoyed this. You were edified by it. God bless. Come back and listen to us again. <laughs>